Good morning. Uh, it, uh, so Tom said this, but my name is Katie Beasley, and for those of you that don't know, um, I have been on, I was on sabbatical over part of the summer and into the fall, so it's been um, almost five months since I have been up here, which feels like a wild amount of time, but um, I feel a little rusty, like as I was preparing this week, um, but I also feel really excited. <clears throat> um, so, we should just dive in before I do anything that I'll regret. <laughs> okay, so for those of you, again, welcome if you're new. Um, we have been going over the book of Ecclesiastes for the last chunk of weeks, and we're heading towards the end of the book. Um, and one thing, so I, I did not get a chance to sort of like dive into this book at the beginning. So if you are here and you haven't dove into this book at the beginning, well, me either, so you're all good. Um, but as I got back from sabbatical, um, and this might be crazy, but I did not go to church for three months. I know, I know how... <laughs> um, and I'm, I, I'll have to tell you that it was kind of amazing um, just to interrupt a part of my life that I've been in ministry for about 20 years um, as a youth pastor and then into kids ministry and then here at Open Door for 16. And to just interrupt a rhythm in my life was so wonderful. And although I'm, like, I missed all of you guys and I was excited to get back to church, I realized that during sabbatical that life... Um, like it was just different for me. It was in my sabbatical wasn't as magical as I thought it would be. It was way more ordinary. Um, it was way more full of washing dishes and scrubbing things. And you know, it, it was just so much more ordinary than I expected. So when we get into the book of Ecclesiastes and I start studying it, I'm like, thank you. This is a perfect book to walk back into because instead of, you know, we spend a lot of our spiritual life in this mysterious place, like the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, his love for us. It's all, it's, it, there isn't as many tangible things as we can hang on to. So there's so much trust in this mysterious way that God works. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is so like concrete and so gritty. I don't know if you are experiencing that, but it, the examples that are given, everything is like, yeah, I can touch that. I know what that is and I have so appreciated the, the mix of it. And today um, I get to do chapter nine, verses 13, through chapter 11, verses six. So, I mean, like an hour or so? You think we can pound out two chapters? Uh, no, okay, so this is a big chunk, um, but we are teaching through this book more like a big flyover in some of these verses, and we are teaching it verse by verse. And so um, just to remind you, we had our Novemberian service last week, and so it's been two weeks since we've been in Ecclesiastes. So I want to remind you where we left you all off. And it was at chapter 9, verse 11. And I'm just going to read this. It says, I have seen something else under the sun. <clears throat> the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, 
nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall expectedly, unexpectedly upon them. So that's where we left off in Ecclesiastes. Um, the, the, the summary of that whole chapter is that we, we have this, we all have this common end that we share, which is death. And over time, all that you have done is lost or forgotten. And wisdom is super helpful and good, but it's really limited. So you might as well enjoy life because you have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and uh, some people believe that this chapter nine is the most depressing chapter in the whole book. Can you understand why? Okay. Um, and as we near the end of this book in these two chapters, we pick up on this sort of flow. And as we've listened to the Kohelet uh, or the teacher kind of deconstruct life, taking life in this human experience, realizing um, that it is just full of so much meaninglessness, it's good to remember that, and I remember this as we were in our teaching team, that he's not a moralist. He's not trying to get you to behave in a right or wrong way, but he's a realist. The teacher's a realist, and he's just honestly naming what is real. That this meaningless and this insignificance fills lots of parts of our days in life, and that's what he calls hevel. Tom mentioned it. It's like it's chasing after the wind, meaningless. And here at the end of chapter nine and by the end of chapter 10, he's starting to sort of button up to finish his deconstruction of life. And like he's done throughout the whole book, he kind of moves us back to a place of hope. And like he just gives us, he like throughout the whole book, he gives us just enough to move forward in the middle of the struggle of being a human being and in the struggle of becoming fully alive. And I think, as I study, I think he models for us a really vital and helpful piece in the process of deconstruction, which includes reconstruction. And many of us have been through some kind of deconstruction process, or you're like actually in the middle of it right now where you're, you've, there's an old way of thinking or doing or being or working, and it just doesn't work anymore. So we, we just naturally begin to deconstruct. And it, sometimes it can be super exciting. Um, it can be really exhausting, and it can be really disillusioning to sort of dismantle whatever it is and even figure out, like, what do I need to let go of? What do I keep? This whole process can be all of those things or one of them or whatever, but whatever it is, it's a necessary process in order to get us unstuck. And it's a necessary process in order for us to grow. And this happens for us in our faith and spiritual journeys too. Usually something tragic or unexpected happens in life where our paradigm of faith starts to shift in the way we think about God and what we believe about him to be true, whether we believe that he has failed us or not, or that he's not listening, or he is nowhere to be found. And we begin to have these big doubts and these big questions. 
And at that point, where this sort of like deconstruction happens, and with all the evil that's under the sun and meaninglessness in the world, a lot of people go away from their spiritual journey. They, they bounce out of it. They find that it's not as self-serving as they originally hoped. It's not as positive as they had hoped. And it, it could also be sort of constructed on a really poor theology that no longer even makes sense in life or experience. And it may not line up with how life is actually going from what you had planned. So instead of rebuilding stuff, we just deconstruct it and like get rid of it because that's easier. But this is what I think is the beauty of Ecclesiastes. That while the Kohelet is deconstructing and poking holes at all the kinds of ways that life plays out, and all the ways that life is full of meaninglessness, he offers us hope and sort of this one foot in front of the other out of deconstruction into reconstruction. And personally, I think deconstruction without reconstruction is very 2022. I think we can do better than that. Um, but before we get to the deconstruction, reconstruction construction conversation, um, we gotta kind of fly over chapter nine and 10. And what we're gonna talk about um, in chapters nine and 10, and then we'll get to reconstruction and deconstruction is the value and limitation of wisdom and how the hazards of time, chance, and accidents make life completely impossible to calculate the uncertainty of. All right? <laughs> Okay, um, we should pray. Yeah. Um, great. Great. All right, let's do that. Um, God, I usually situate this prayer closer to the beginning, but we had to get a little introduction, and now we are here. Um, in a place that feels really true and really unfortunate that this is sometimes how life is. Um, but we ask for your grace. We ask for you to speak. We ask for you to be in the middle of whatever deconstruction process that we are in. Be kind with us. Be gentle with us. And lead us into a place of reconstruction and hope and a truer vision a truer revelation of who you are. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, I'm not gonna ask this a whole lot of times, but are you with me? Okay. I'm feeling a lot of like, uh, okay. I'm feeling a lot of like, uh, I don't know if you're out there. <laughs> um, but this is, hot, this is heavy stuff. So you do you, do you. I'm gonna do me. And then we'll see if we meet in the middle, okay? And then God's got all the other stuff. Okay, so Ecclesiastes, chapter nine, verse 18, 10 through one. Okay, so we're gonna pick up the text here. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. 
And throughout this chapter, which I would love for you to go back and read 9 and 10 and 11, because I'm not going to go, like I said, we're doing a flyover. But we get this feeling that wisdom is super helpful, is better than weapons of war, but it has a limitation and is way more vulnerable than I personally would like it to be. It's still good. It is clearly better than being foolish. But here we see in verses 18 and 10.1 that it doesn't take all that much for wisdom and honor to be spoiled or torn down apparently. And this, this feels, this, as I was studying, I was like, this feels so frustrating to me that it's easier to destroy something and make it stink than it is to work hard and create something. You know, it's, it's so annoying to me, but it's so true. Like if you think about even like a child building, building some sort of block and then it takes forever, but over, that's that kind of thing. And this is what I love about Ecclesiastes because like I said before, it takes us out of this sort of like mysterious way in which God works into this, the gritty ordinary parts of life. Because we all know about flies, dead or alive. And we see throughout the book over and over these, con- the Kohelet is concerned about providing us with ordinary concrete actions to demonstrate the absurdity of real life. And I personally am like really digging that part. Um, so I thought about two stories that I have about flies. Number one, did anybody get visited by the fruit fly situation that happened like a month ago? Okay, to me, there's nothing that makes me feel dirtier in the kitchen <laughs> than when you like walk in or reach for something and then... <laughs> There's just like this burst of fruit flies. But I, while I was studying this, I make myself a cup of coffee and then I set it down and I came back to it and I was like, oh, there's fruit flies in my coffee. And I was so excited to drink it, but it was like, oh, is this what the Kohelet is talking about? Because now do I wanna drink the coffee? No. And some of you might be like a fish it out and drink it. But I tell, and I did, but did I lose? (laughs) But did I lose enjoyment of it? Yes. Or how about when you find a piece of hair in your food? Do you eat the rest of it? Maybe. Or do you say no thank you, but I guarantee that if you decide to put it in your mouth, there's a level of satisfaction that has gone down, even if it's yours, <laughs> okay? So we, we see, like, that's what I mean. There's such like a gritty, concrete feeling that we have here in Ecclesiastes. The other story that I thought about flies is we went camping. Um, and, okay, so I've, I do have to tell you the story. My husband always reads through every single one of my sermon, always has, and he told me, please don't tell people what park that we go to because I don't want a whole lot of people to go there because he is super introverted. So I'm not gonna say what state park we went to in Big Fork, Minnesota. <laughs> That's three hours away. Um, he, you just get mad when somebody's on the lake. You're like, what are they doing fishing on my lake? Then I have to remind him that this is a public lake. It's a state park. It wasn't... 
they didn't just create it for you and whatever. So, um, but we pull, like, we know how to do the camping thing. We like going up to Big Fork. It's kind of known for flies at times, you know, some of the northern, um, some of the stuff up north is known for that. They're boundary waters. You know there's going to be mosquitoes or whatever, so you prepare for it. So we got all ready for it, um, had all the stuff um, that we needed, repellent, screen tent, all of that. Um, and we drive three hours, and we're ready for it, but we weren't ready for the amount. And they made the camping trip so unpleasant that we left. So I started thinking, yes, flies, they ruin a lot of stuff. And so it was just this like, wow, this beautiful scenery, a favorite place to go, and it's ruined by this tiny little like fly. There's so many of them. Um, but these are just, so these are two stories that came to my mind, but I, I thought that we could just do a little poll here. Um, I'm gonna give you 10 seconds, okay? And this, will, this is, does involve you raising a hand. But as soon as you think of a story in your life where you had something really wonderful planned or situated, could be really simple or extravagant, and that one thing was ruined by one little thing. And we're gonna see if we're all on the same page as the Kohelet. If we, so, okay, I'm gonna give you 10 seconds, and as soon as you think of a story, I want you to raise your hand. And we'll see if we're on the same, oh, we already got them. Okay. Many of us, given even a short amount of time, be like, yep, I know exactly what you're saying when something wonderful was ruined by something tiny. And this is like, this is a frustrating part of life that that is so true. I mean, we don't want it to be true, but it is so true that a little folly can outweigh wisdom and honor. That doesn't make any sense to me, but... I think we all are like, yep, true. Not cool, but true. Um, so we move. So as we move into the next chapter, or the same chapter of Ecclesiastes, but kind of move towards the next verses, um, we're going to talk about the subject of accidents and unplanned crises that happen in life. <sighs> so we move towards the end of this book. And you get the feeling that the Kohelet is starting to just brain dump all the ways that life doesn't go how we planned and in all the ways that we think that it should. So Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verses eight through 10. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. If the ax is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. And he lists out these examples of total, totally normal, concrete activities or jobs and regular like everyday work. These are things that happen every single day. And we, you don't get any impression that anybody here did anything wrong. Doesn't matter how careful or vigilant they might be, Accidents happen, and we can't escape them, or at least we can't escape all of them. 
And accidents can go from something being super minor that kind of changes your day to something that is really life-changing and altering. And they might happen over time or they can happen in the blink of an eye. And so often these, or so often accidents or crises rock the very core of our faith because they seem so senseless and unfair. And I would say that most of them that I have seen over the years are both senseless and unfair. The longer I live, 42 years down the road at this point, these annoying and heartbreaking accidents that either directly affect us or those we love, you realize that they are just part of being alive. As hard as it sounds, it's another one of those things like, I don't want that to be true, but it's true. And when something big like this, big like that happens, our paradigm for faith in God starts to become inadequate. And it, it can lead us to different questions, to deeper questions, expressing bigger amounts of doubt. And we start to wonder about things like, what is the meaning of life? Like, why am I here? What is the point? And we, we have an opportunity to get more honest with ourselves and other people. But, some, but so often this crisis and accident, for good reason, totally throws us off balance and it reveals a truth to us that we come into contact with over and over again that we are not as in control of life as we think. And this becomes a catalyst for movement on the spiritual journey. And sometimes it moves us away from God and sometimes it moves us towards him. And as I was studying um, the way the Kohelet is like honestly laying all these things out and the way he starts to deconstruct life, it totally reminded me of the work that I've seen before around the stages of faith by uh, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick. And we've talked about this at Open Door before, but it's been a while. And I was introduced to this work um, years ago and it was super helpful for me. Um, and they, they wrote a book. And so I'm, I'm gonna just be, I'm gonna try my goal that I was praying for all week is that I won't be confusing. So if you wanna go further, don't let me leave you at the place of confusing. They wrote a book that you can read. <laughs> yourself if this feels like, yeah, I want to go deeper with this. And it's called <clears throat> The Critical Journey. If you, if you don't remember that, and years later, you can email me because I've already been here for 16, and so I'll probably be here for a while. But um, in light of Ecclesiastes and the deconstruction and reconstruction process, I'm going to show you an image um, like I said, this is really great work. It's been super helpful for me, but it's not, um, it's not a formula or a how-to, so sorry. Um, but it, it clearly helps describe the various phases of our spiritual journey and how people might think or act in those stages. And it helps describe these transitions that either move us or get us stuck. Um, so, okay, great. Okay, you see stage one and two, three, four, the wall five and six. Okay, so a few things. None of these stages are better than the other. So before you try to like race your way all the way to stage six, think of this more like a 
like uh, human development where these stages age, experience, sort of like build on one another from previous experience. And everybody, according to, the, to Hagberg and Gulick, enters in on step one and you don't skip any. That's like not how this thing works. You don't like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'll pop in on three and I'll go to sit, you know, okay. So you enter in on one, which is the recognition of God. These stages are fluid and you can move back and forth, but you can't move ahead of what, you've, what you haven't experienced yet. Um, so th- you can think about it as like, if you play video games, you have to like unlock a level before you can kind of move. You know, it's kind of like that. You don't experience it until you move through it. Um, and you can move from stage to stage at different times of your life or a, any given week or day or hour you can be moving through these stages. Um, and then you can actually revisit a stage to go deeper, and then it sort of turns into like a spiral. Like you can kind of go deeper in the ways that you experience life in these stages. So <clears throat> for the purpose of this image and the stages of faith, they define faith as the process by which we let God direct our lives or the process by which we let God be God. So at stage one, you discover faith or recognition in God and you have this sense of awe, this sense of need. There's like an innocence to this first stage. And again, you can revisit these at any time and go deeper in this sense of awe. Stage two is the life of discipleship where once you're like, what? This life-changing God that can impact my life, you, start, you wanna start learning about faith. You, wanna, you start like, I want, I want more Bible study. I, want, I wanna go deeper with scripture. And there's this like kind of hunger to be learning. You have, your meaning is found in sort of belonging to, well, now I'm a part of a family. I'm part of a church family. And a lot of times we get a lot of these answers from a leader or a cause or a belief or, belief or scripture or like we go towards a source. Stage three is called the productive life. This is we're working for God. We found out about him. We're learning more about, we realize like I could be an active participant in this. You start finding your unique place in community. You feel like this responsibility for um, this newfound faith that you have, your lo- you, there's a loyalty that's starting to grow in you. And these, these first three stages are, the are kind of like the external standards that we usually, like I said, they're found in a leader or a cause or by the church or, or the Bible or the set of principles that we sort of like look externally for these to help us move, to help us gain more because we just found... Jesus. Stage four is the journey inward where we start to like rediscover God. It becomes more deep and more personal. We experience something that we realize that we have a little bit of a loss of uncertainty of life and faith. And, and a lot of times at this stage, people can feel like I've lost my faith. I don't know where God is. I don't feel him. This is not what I signed up for. 
And these, the, from this stage onto six represent this sort of like difficult personal transformation and the uh, reemerging of a different kind of faith that comes out. And when we're stuck here at stage four, we become immobilized and we like turn really kind of self-absorbed and self-centered and we ask questions and we ask and we ask and we ask and we immobilize ourselves, we get stuck. And then you'll see, um, if you wanna put the image back up, you'll see after stage four, there's what's called the wall. And this is where our will meets God's will. And it is this like desert kind of wilderness place we're, we're facing truth and like we need healing, those kinds of things. We're gonna come back to the wall in just a minute because I think it is so tied to the chapter, to this chapter in Ecclesiastes. But once you make it through the wall, you're on stage five and you, you surrender. Once you meet God's will face to face and you realize like, I'm gonna go through the wall, you come out on the other side with this sort of surrendered and, and renewed sense of God's love for you and a sense of calling and you become a little more detached to compulsions, um, and then you move to stage six, with it, which is faith that is reflecting God, and wisdom is gained, and compassion grows. You really wanna live in obedience to God, and it is this like um, beautiful movement, but we can come, like I said, these are fluid. You can come in and out of this, and typically you have like a home, base where what you, there's a stage of life that feels most natural to you, typically. It could be one, it could be two. Um, but there's like a, yeah, I, when I, at my core, I operate out of this stage of faith. Um, so again, this is a tool, it's not everything. If you're confused, like I said, there's a book. But now we're gonna talk about the wall. This representation of our will meeting God's will face to face. And it can be really disorienting and uncomfortable and confusing. Our natural bend is to resist this wall. But the only way to get through this wall, or the only way to go, to move, is to go through the wall. We talked about this years ago at Open Door. The only way out is through. And lots of people don't want to do that. If you've ever known someone, or maybe you know someone right now, uh, in any, any part of your life who's had a crisis of faith where something shifted and they eventually threw the baby out with the bathwater or they don't wanna have anything to do with it, with God or Jesus or church, or, and that, maybe that's you, that's okay. And I think there's a beautiful thing in naming that there is a wall in our spiritual lives. There's a few things, a few common ways that we show up to this wall that we try to resist it by trying to fix it, you might feel guilty or ashamed that you're at a wall with all that God has done, like it feels shameful. You're trying to rationalize it or analyze it away or you try to build a better, more efficient wall so you can use that one just to pop over the wall or you double down on what you know not, and not go into the unknown, into the mysterious or you skip trying to go, you skip it by trying to go around it or underneath it or just doing your best to just obliterate that wall to pieces. 
And Jesus is like, oh, yeah. I need you to actually go through that. You can't just keep trying to blast the wall to pieces. And sometimes we can't go through the wall because we, like on the other side, if you are unconditionally loved and accepted for who you are, that's just, that, that's just too scary to do that. And we find that people like leave it all together, faith. And the wall is, is such a necessary, vital role in the process of our spiritual journey and our healing. And, and I can't tell you how helpful this was to me to name that there was a wall or what some people refer to as the dark night of the soul, this uncomfortable, unfamiliar place where I deeply loved Jesus but I couldn't reconcile what I was experiencing in my life in regards to my own personal suffering. It didn't have any, I had no context for that. And I realized along the way, along the way that there was some really interesting and sometimes very unhelpful theologies that I had picked up along the way that I was using to try to make sense of God. And so when I saw the wall, this image, when this was introduced to me, I was so relieved when I learned that questions and unfamiliar territory, the unknown are all part of us moving into a deeper life with Jesus. I was relieved that my doubting did not actually mean that I was exempt from faith. And I was super relieved at this point in my life, it was, it was probably like my mid-30s, where I could still love Jesus and not have this all figured out. And I think I was most relieved that this is like a natural part of the spiritual journey. And so even if you walk out of here today just knowing that a wall, uncertainty, unknowing is part of your spiritual journey, and that feels like water and relief to you, then I am so happy because that's what it did for me. And the, the process of deconstructing, which is so necessary for us to engage in when we get to this wall, like it is so necessary, but the deconstruction of our faith without a reconstruction of what is more true, a better version of the gospel of Jesus in our life can end up, can end, have us end up feeling bitter, cynical, we're leaving, we don't know how to do this thing, so we're just gonna go out and you turn around from the wall because it's too much work, or you stay in the shallow end of the pool and you decide not to do the, the, deep, the deeper life that God is calling us to because it costs too much or it's too ambiguous or it's too much to even think about letting go of control even though it's illusion that you even have it. It's super uncomfortable because on the other side of the wall, once we go through it, there is less clarity. But we realize that that's okay and we surrender to God's will, we don't always understand. There's a sense of peace in what we don't know and what we don't understand and you realize that life is so much more full of mystery. We allow God to, we don't take the driver's seat, we allow God to lead us to places that we are not going to choose on our own. We realize that we are going to be led 
by Jesus. We're way less in control than we think and we become more accepting of the fact, whether we like it or not, but it is true that life is unpredictable. And I love the way, I love what um, Hagberg and Gulick write in their book and it's been really challenging for me. I'm still kind of chewing on it. Um, but it says, once we move through the wall, wholeness looks a lot like weakness. Wholeness does not make us stronger. It allows God to start working through our weaknesses and we become more self-aware. We become more less in charge. We become more simple. And then that is what God can use the most in us is our brokenness. And this is really hard to accept until you go through the wall. The process of deconstruction and the method that Kohelet has been using through this whole book makes room for the actual gospel of Jesus to grow in this upside down kingdom. So after the questions have been asked since the start of this book, and many of the hard things about life have been named, including the things we put stock in for our safety and security, much of which we realize is actually meaningless, the Kohelet turns and he starts to build and plant again, and he reconstructs, and he offers his advice <clears throat> in the middle of uncertainty, knowing I mean, he just, he has laid this out. He knows that all of life is not gonna work out according to our plans or our life is not gonna like work out without trouble or struggle. And he comes back up for breath and he, in chapter 11, and he gives us just enough hope to keep going. And he says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in a place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the works of God, the maker of all things. So sow your seed in the morning, and, in e and at evening, let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether it will be this <clears throat> or that, or whether both will do equally well. And these verses, na they name the unpredictab unpredictability and uncertainty of life and invite us to live into generosity towards others. And this is what the Kohelet has been doing the whole book. Don't watch and wait eat, live, enjoy. You never, you, have, you never know what life is gonna throw at you. And we can totally have priorities in life. I very much support priorities and plans and strategies. But sometimes we don't always know what the best thing is. So live generously. Even if you don't know if it's gonna come back to you, or whether you're doing the right or the wrong thing or the reward will work out or not, you do it anyway. You sow your seed day and night. You live generously. He says, stop watching the clouds. Stop trying to catch the path of the wind. 
Stop trying to predict where the tree is gonna fall. It's going north or south, and when it falls, it's gonna go wherever it is. It's gonna lay there. And if we are trying to understand all the things that God is working out, he says, let me remind you, as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. And it's like the Kohelet here at the end of his deconstruction of life sits down next to us and puts his arm around us and invites us to reimagine Life, after all that we have seen and experienced, the evil of the world, the unpredictability of the day, and the pain that comes along with our human experience, he starts to reconstruct something for us. And he reminds us that God was never meant to be fully understood. And he gives us this other concrete example that should blow us all away. The example of the path of the wind and a baby that's formed in the womb Both of those things we have absolutely no control over. And I don't care how advanced or enlightened we get in society. Those two things are way out of our league. So when our will meets God's will face to face, we have the opportunity as we walk through the wall to surrender to Jesus and to follow him. And it reminds me of what Jesus said said in Mark, whoever wants to save their life is gonna lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so through this wall, you realize you come on the other side and you're being led. I mean, no one, wa- no one wants to be at the wall. The wall is not like a, I mean, please don't go construct one for yourself so that you have one to go through so you can experience more life. That's not That is not the point. No one wants to be at the wall. No one wants to go through crisis or loss. But we do, or we have, or we will. And this is an invitation to be led by Jesus into a place where if you are are deconstructing things, and it is getting kind of like messy, like you don't know which end is up and like what do I believe about God anymore? Yay. This is a really uncomfortable, really hard place to be, but it is a true place to be and it is welcome on the spiritual journey to find a place where you come to the end of yourself and you realize that you could be led by a God you do not know all about him but we do know about him is that he is kind and he is loving. And if you have been through the wall before, you know that on the other side that he offers something that is, that is full life. It's more true and more real about your life on the other side of the wall. So as we, I'm gonna invite the um, worship team up here and we're gonna sing a song called I Will Follow. Um, and our, like our, our values, we have them written out there on the wall, but you know, it is our, it is our mission. It is our, um, yeah, to be radically committed to spiritual formation for the sake of others. And part of that, like, how does that, how do we practice that? And part of this, one of them is to live in grace and truth. And we say clearly on the wall that life in God is a mystery. 
and its questions don't have tidy black and white answers, but together we seek to follow Jesus, we seek his third way, and we seek a way of grace and truth. And so, again, I just wanna say, in the deconstruction process, like, embrace where God has you right now and be led by just a beautiful savior. Um, so let's, let's stand together and sing, whether you can or not. The song is a response.